Job chapter 5, I'm entitling this portion, Right Words at the Wrong Time. Job chapter 5, let's read the first seven verses. Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I've seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns. And a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We've been studying the book of Job. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book, look at chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. However, let me just give you the summation. The Lord has allowed Satan to test Job. After a series of horrible catastrophes, the loss of property, the loss of children, the loss of health, Job's friends show up to share grief and offer comfort. And Eliphaz is in many ways the voice of experience. His words start off gentle, but they quickly escalate to judgment and accusation. And in order to support his position, he appeals to a private dream and a vision of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And Eliphaz concludes that human suffering is rooted and grounded in human sinfulness and rebellion. Yet there's hope, since God uses suffering as tools For correction and purification. So Eliphaz suggests that if Job will submit to the suffering and trust God with patience, Job's repentance will return him to prosperity. Now, much of what Eliphaz says is true. Is God holy? The answer is yes. Do human beings suffer because of sin and rebellion? The answer is yes. Does the presence of Job's horrible sufferings provide proof that there is hidden and unconfessed sin in Job's life? The answer is no. And that's the rub. Are there times when we have unconfessed or hidden sin in our lives? I think the truthful answer is yes. But is unconfessed sin or is hidden sin the universal answer to the problem of personal suffering? If Job says anything loud and clear, the answer has to be no. Not according to the book of Job. Suffering is way more complex. What do you do? When you see people suffer. 
usually we're going to react, hopefully, if, if there's even one ounce of Jesus in your heart, you'll reach out with compassion and comfort. And does compassion and comfort sometimes also seem like it's followed by suspicion and accusation? Isn't that odd how things work? Job's friends will speak a lot of truth, and we can sometimes speak the truth at the wrong time. Here's the other issue. Sometimes we can speak the truth, but apply the truth in the wrong situation. Truth spoken at the wrong time, or applied in the wrong situation, doesn't bring comfort. Are the godless born to grief in verses 1 through 7? Yes. Is it a good idea to present your case to God whenever you're in trouble? In verses 8 through 16. Yes. Typically. It depends on what you're arguing. Is it a good idea to embrace God's discipline? The answer is yes. The Bible says in Hebrews we're not to to despise God's discipline. It's quoting from this chapter. Let's look at verse 1. Cry out for a mediator. Eliphaz is speaking. This is Job's friend. He says, call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? Do you understand what's happening? Eliphaz is encouraging Job to cry out for a mediator. And later on in the book, Job will do exactly that. He will say, would to God that there was a mediator between me and God. Someone that I could put my hand on and that God could put put his hand on. And of course, the mediator that he's crying out for is the mediator that you enjoy. Jesus Christ the Lord. Who is the bridge between heaven and earth. Is there anyone who can confirm Job's claim to be innocent of sin? That's what Eliphaz is saying. And Eliphaz has already made up his mind about the answer. No. He's saying, and to which of the holy ones? And who are the holy ones? Some scholars believe it's a reference to angelic beings, supernatural beings who who understand the invisible world as well as the visible world. Are they angels or are they men? Most people believe that, that they're angels. In one sense, Eliphaz believes that no one will agree with Job. No one will defend Job. If Job doesn't admit his sin, he's going to continue to suffer, according to Eliphaz. And of course, things will be radically different when God, in fact, does show up. And he has some words to say. In verse 2, it says, For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. Now Eliphaz is going to escalate his argument. He cites a reason in verse 2. He cites results in verses 3 and 4 and 5. The reason, he says, for wrath kills a foolish man. Do you understand what he's saying? Resentment and envy. Eliphaz is suggesting that the reason why Job is so upset and the reason why Job is 
went on his rant in in, uh, chapter 3 is because of resentment and envy. Eliphaz may not be calling Job a fool, but he's certainly comparing him to a fool. For wrath and a For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. Perhaps the most charitable way to read our text is that Eliphaz is suggesting that Job not play the role of the innocent sufferer, a role best played by fools. But you see, again, the text is is pounding home an issue. The issue is, beware, because you may not know everything that you think that you know. The the text is pounding home a truth. And the truth is that Eliphaz is guilty of presumption. So what is the accusation? Job is bitter and resentful towards those who aren't experiencing hardship and pain and suffering loss. Is Job envious of those who are still healthy? I think that Eliphaz is reading way too much into Job's circumstance. Remember what has happened to Job. Job has lost everything. And Job has lost almost everyone. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. He's lost his health. And by the way, if you have suffered profound loss, deep loss, is it normal, if you will, to look around you and look at people who haven't experienced loss? Their marriage is still intact. Their family is still intact. All of those things are happening. And you fold your arms and you say, how come they're well? And how come I'm sick? How come everything's going right in their life? And how come everything's going wrong in my life? Are there times when people do experience resentment and envy? The answer is yes. Is it true in Job's case? Not necessarily. Eliphaz believes Job to be a fool for not admitting his sin in the face of this overwhelming tragedy. For a fool's house is cursed, children crushed, wealth consumed or stolen by others. So here's his argument. A person would be foolish if they failed to see that there's something wrong with them, that there's some horrible, terrible, unconfessed, unresolved, unspoken sin. So in light of the evidence, Job must be guilty. And he refuses to repent. And so in verse 4, he says his sons are far from safety. I'm going to suggest to you, again, he's speaking in the third person, but everybody reading the text knows that he's talking about Job. They're crushed at the gate. There is no deliverer because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction comes not from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. So where does suffering come from? Does it spring out of nowhere? Here's what Eliphaz is saying. Are there antecedent causes in order to explain what has happened in verse 4? His sons are dead. They're crushed in the gate. That means the place of judgment. There is no deliverer. Eliphaz argues it's not natural in verse 6. And it's brought on by human beings. The suffering, the pain, the problem. Here's what Eliphaz is, is basically suggesting. Job, in reality... These things just don't happen out of nowhere. You don't just all of a sudden wake up one day 
And everything you had is gone and your children are gone and your health is gone. You must somehow be responsible. And so when he says in verse 7, nor does trouble spring from the ground or come out of nowhere. Trouble doesn't grow overnight like a weed. Trouble isn't random or accidental. So once again, Eliphaz is arguing that Job's trouble are the direct result of his sin. In verse 7 it says, Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's become an aphorism or a, a wise saying that, that, that human beings, just like in the New Testament, The Bible says, in this world, you'll experience tribulation. But what Eliphaz fails to say is the rest of the passage. But be of good cheer, for Jesus has overcome the world. So Eliphaz argues that trouble comes to all people because of sin and the sinful nature. And by the way, is it true? Are people sinful by nature? The answer is yes. Are they sinful by choice? The answer is yes. Do we fall short of the glory of God? Just like it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the answer is yes. Is it true that none are righteous? The answer is yes. Is it true that some suffer because of their sin? The answer is yes. But it's also true that there are some things that happen that there's not a correlation, a direct correlation. This isn't the only reason people suffer. And this is part of the key for you. And it's clearly not the reason that Job is suffering. I think most of you know why we look for reasons in suffering. Because we think if we have the answer, that once we know the answer, that that we will be satisfied with the answer and we will feel different about our suffering. But knowing the reason, does that change the way that you feel? And the answer is no. A Bible teacher wrote, it's dangerous to diagnose a problem with limited information and facts. Eliphaz, like too many of us sometimes, jumps to conclusions and makes rash judgments. He should have asked the Lord directly for wisdom and insight into Job's situation. Instead, he was trying to apply general observations and truths to a specific situation. Consequently, his conclusions were all wrong. God's word tells us repeatedly, seek the Lord for wisdom. Pray in all circumstances. The Bible says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promises of the eternal inheritance. Eliphaz says, cry out for a mediator. And guess what? You have one. Actually, the advice isn't all that bad. When you find yourself in trouble, is it wrong to cry out to Jesus? And the answer is no. Is it to expect that Jesus is going to provide help and comfort? And the answer is yes. And so this next section, seek the Lord and cry out to him. Look at verses 8 through 16. It says, but as for me, in verse 8, I would seek God. 
And to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He carries the wise in their own He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts their mouth. Look again in verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God. And to God I would commit my cause. Again, here's what Eliphaz is saying. Job. Job. Do you know what I would do if I were you? Does that sound familiar? Just pause for a moment. Just pause for a moment and let that sink in. Imagine a person is hurt. Imagine a person is crushed. Imagine a person is pain, in pain, deep pain. Have you ever found yourself in a hospital room? Have you ever found yourself next to a grave? Have you ever found yourself in a difficult circumstance? Have you ever found yourself with a wayward child? Have you ever found yourself in circumstances and somebody comes up to you and they say, you know what I would do if I were you? If I were you. I would present my case to God and I would appeal for help and maybe God will deliver you from this suffering and if that doesn't work, at least God will give you some hope and prepare your heart for the death that's inevitable. The problem. Well, let's look at what's good for just a moment. Is it bad advice that when you find yourself in circumstances to To plead your case to God. That's actually pretty good advice. The problem, of course, is when Eliphaz says, do you know what I would do if I were you in the case of seeking God? It's the assumption that Job hasn't sought God. Now, those of you who are familiar with the book of Job, you've read chapter 1 and you've read chapter 2, and you realize that God loves Job and Job loves the Lord and that he made it a point to seek the Lord, to love him and serve him so much so. Remember that the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job that there's no one like him in all of the earth? As he's a good man and a godly man. He loves the Lord and he loves his children. You see, this is the problem. When anyone ever says, Do you know what I would do if I were you? It implies so much. Particularly if you have yet to hear all of the circumstances or know all of the facts. This week I heard a story of a young man who was tragically injured by an improvised explosive device 
in Afghanistan. He, his Humvee had blown up and he woke up in a triage unit and there below him was this bloody mess that used to be his lower torso and he wakes up in a fog and there is the surgeon covered in his blood and he says, son, I, I need to tell you something that, that I've had to amputate both of your legs. And he weeps and he cries and he trembles. And the surgeon says, son, it's okay, I understand. He goes, how could you say such a stupid thing? How could you possibly tell me that you understand? He goes, no, I I really do understand. He goes, how could you possibly understand? You don't understand. He goes, I do understand. No, you don't. Yes, I do. And he lifted up his scrubs and underneath his scrubs were two prosthesis because the surgeon had lost both of his legs does he know everything about everything no does he know something about something yes when we say you know what i would do if i were you do we need to be careful how we proceed when in fact we don't Now, Eliphaz is going to give five good reasons why Job or anyone who suffers should cry out for the Lord's help. Number one, that the Lord is powerful in verse 9. Number two, that the Lord is caring and looks out for his creation in verse 10. That the Lord is compassionate in verse 11. That the Lord is the righteous judge in verses 12 through 14. That the Lord is the Savior in verses 15 through 16. And all of those are good reasons to cry out to God when you're in pain. Verse 9, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? Well, that's the Lord. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. That's another way of saying he is caring. He looks out for his creation. He sets on high those who are lowly. He raises certain people up and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He elevates. He frustrates the devices of the, of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. Does he thwart wicked people and wicked plans? The answer is yes. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the coming Uh, The cunning comes quickly upon them. Now what's interesting about verse 13, the apostle Paul will quote this exact verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 19. Paul quotes it in the context of unmasking false wisdom of the world. Isn't that interesting? They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. How is injustice kept quiet? Because here's what Eliphaz is arguing. Hey, there's a God in heaven. True. He makes every wrong thing right. That is true. Eliphaz has an impressive speech and the impressive speech is supposed to move Job to admit that he's a sinner, to admit his guilt and the Lord will save him. The problem? The Lord's already told us. Job is blameless. Job doesn't have anything to admit. Job isn't 
suffering because of personal sin or personal wrongdoing. Pause. Is that the exception? I think so. Do we sometimes suffer because we really are guilty of something? We've done something painful, hurtful. We've done something self-destructive. Yeah. Under normal circumstances, what Eliphaz is saying would seem to ring true. Has Eliphaz spoken the truth? Yes. Here's the better question. Is Eliphaz missing the point? That's the right answer. I want you to hold that thought for just a moment. He's speaking the truth, but he's missed the point. I want you to hold on to that thought for just a moment. Because remember what the Bible says, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It's not just what you say, and it's not even just when you say it. It's saying the right thing at the right time and the right way. Eliphaz applauds God's power and God's care and God's compassion and God's justice and God's salvation. Does Job believe that God heals and forgives? That's exactly what Job believes. Is Job aware of any deliberate sin in his life? The answer is no. What's most difficult in our day and age is to comprehend that. Remember, a blameless person is not a sinless person. But can you imagine living your life in such a way that you begin to understand something? That the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. He's forgiven us our sin and he's reconciled us to the Father. And he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness so that we can walk in cooperation and submission and humility with the Lord. Is Job aware of any deliberate sin? The answer is no. Eliphaz's words sound noble and they sound true. But they don't provide comfort. The speech is empty because it offers no real comfort in Job's circumstance. The speech of Eliphaz is noble, but it's only partially true and not sufficiently true or even eternally true as it applies to Job. And this is one of the key concepts. The wisdom of God filtered through fallen men may offer temporary hope and help. This is why a person might even say to you, you know what I would do if I were you? Could they offer sound advice, even good advice, even what seems like biblical advice? But here's part of the challenge. Man's wisdom results in temporary hope and temporary help. What if I suggested to you that each and every person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ needs God's wisdom? We need wisdom from above. Remember the Bible says that wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle. And so in Proverbs 26, 12, it says, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And here's the challenge. 
Eliphaz has made a guarded, a veiled insinuation that Job is a fool. But who's the real fool? What if I suggested to you, and I even suggested to myself, that the real fool is the person who pretends to know things that they really don't know? In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, Paul writes, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're vain. He's quoting this passage. He's alluding to this incident. And so look at God's discipline. Faithfully accept correction. And now we come to the end of the chapter. In verse 17, look what it says. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he shall redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. And you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall (laughs) laugh at destruction and famine. And you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field. And the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many. And your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its seasons. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know it for yourself. This is Eliphaz's way of saying, I'm done. No charge. This one's on me. This is Eliphaz's way of saying, Job, if you'll only repent, if you'll admit that something's horribly and terribly wrong with you, then you'll be able to turn that Brown upside down. It's a clever speech. It's a compelling speech. He begins in verse 17. Do not despise God's discipline. The implication? You're guilty, Job. There's a reason why all of this is happening. God is spanking you. You're suffering because you're guilty. You're getting what you deserve. You're not listening to God's reproofs. And now Eliphaz will speak of God's blessings to the faithful. We might think of this as the beatitudes of experience. Remember, he's had a vision in the night. And then he says, behold, happy is the man. This sounds reminiscent of the New Testament. Oh, how happy is the man. This is sort of what I would call The Beatitudes of Experience. 
God sustains in calamity, verses 19 through 23. He sees you through the aftermath in verses 24 through 26. And once again, Eliphaz continues to accuse Job of sin by saying, look, if you just repent, God's going to restore everything that you've lost. Eliphaz, again, speaks in the third person, but we know he's speaking about Job. So, again, how do we think about what's happening? Is it always good advice to embrace the discipline and correction of the Lord? Yes. Is all suffering related to the discipline and the correction of the Lord? The answer is no. So when you accuse someone of discipline or correction when in fact it's not true, every kid knows, especially if you have brothers and sisters, Sometimes bad things happen at home. Mom and dad come back and they say, who broke the lamp? Who tore the couch? Who did this? Who did that? And the brothers and the sisters look at each other and they all point to the dog. (laughs) Because they're thinking, dad isn't going to be upset with the dog, but mom and dad might spank me. The problem is, Sometimes we are guilty. Sometimes we're not. Eliphaz relates nine blessings as they relate to the faithful. Follow along with me quickly. Number one, the Lord bruises or strikes or wounds a person who needs to be corrected. Look again in verse 18. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Here's what Eliphaz is suggesting. Look, there's a God who disciplines. Does the Lord use corporal punishment? I think the answer is yes. The Bible talks about stripes. Yet God binds up and heals the person that he corrects. Eliphaz suggests that Job is being disciplined and God will bind up the brokenhearted. And we know that in Isaiah, the Bible says that that the Messiah will come and he will bind up the brokenhearted. And number two, the Lord will deliver repeatedly. Verse 19, look what it says. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yea, or yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. The idea being the Lord is complete in his deliverance. Six, even seven times. The number seven is the number of wholeness. It's the number of wellness. It's the number of completeness. And so the idea being that God delivers Job completely and he'll restore Job completely. And number three, that God rescues people from death and famine and war. That's in verse 20. If God can rescue people in national catastrophe and corporate calamity, then God can rescue Job in personal suffering and even death. And number four, the Lord God protects people from slander and the fear of destruction in verse 21. God will protect Job from fear and personal slander. And some were maligning his name due to the tragedies and disasters that afflicted Job. Now this is interesting because Eliphaz is the one who's maligning Job. And number five, God gives courage, even laughter in the face of danger, in the midst of destruction and famine and wild animals of the earth in verse 22. Job has nothing to fear if he'll just simply admit that he's wrong and plead forgiveness. In fact, God will give Job the courage to face his fears 
Eliphaz argues in number six, God gives a covenant of peace and harmony with nature, with the stones and the wild animals of the earth. If you look in verse 23, it says, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field. To have a covenant with the stones of the field or to be in league with the stones of the field was an Old Testament way of saying that the ground would be fruitful instead of unfruitful because when you were plowing a piece of land when you were a farmer you would overturn the dirt and sometimes that dirt would be filled with rocks and so to be fruitful it means to be fruitful instead of unfruitful since stony ground brings little fruit so the argument goes something like this in job's present sufferings the lord will bring peace and harmony his fields and harvest will be restored even the wild animals won't harm him as he goes about his business number 7 god will secure home and property bring assurance and security in verse 24 job's wealth could be secured and restored if he would only repent and number Number eight, God gives assurance of children and descendants in verse 25. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age. God will bring a long, righteous, vigorous, fruitful life. That's number nine. Give Job a long, meaningful, productive life. God will give you more children, ensure a long and lasting legacy. Your children will go into the future. They'll be the recipients of your wealth. You'll be able to put and push your DNA deep into the future. And God will take home to his reward until he, he, you, you won't die until you've reached your first full potential. This is Eliphaz's way of saying, you will have your best life. Ever. I was reading something this week from a missionary in India and the Middle East. Her name was Mildred Tangborn. And she writes a reflection on verses 18 through 27. She adopts it as her own and And she rewrites it for modern days. She says, quote, You'll be safe when you drive on the freeways. And even though recession comes, your investments will escape undepleted in value. The wars break out and you're drafted into service. You'll be assigned a safe desk job position. Your condominium will be be behind locked gates, guarantee you security from robbers. And in your affluent country, people will not stand in bread lines. Your investments in bonds and real estate will net you huge profits. And in business, no dishonest person will ever fleece you. You will meet the man or the girl of your dreams. And they'll love you forever. Your children will be born strong and healthy. And only as many as close together as you want them. And your wife will give birth to them. In a relaxed, easy, natural way. At home. With no complications. And you assisting. You yourself will enjoy vigorous health, a youthful figure, a thrilling sex life, sharp intellect, even in your declining years. 
with continuing promotions and salary raises. And your end will be like the resplendent setting of the sun as it goes down in the west. This is all fun to hear. But it's not true. It's easy to listen to. But it's impossible to live. You can hear it and want to turn the frown upside down and live your best life ever until you get sick. Until you fail an exam. Until you get hurt in a relationship. Until you lose that promotion. Or when you find out your child is addicted to drugs or porn or you face a divorce or you shiver through the winter or you wait in line for gasoline. And then all of a sudden you realize something. That if you do everything right and you do everything the right way every single time, that sometimes bad things really do happen. Eliphaz, your promises are not God's promises. Here's what Jesus said in John 16, 33. The world will make you suffer. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Matthew 10, 38. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow in my footsteps isn't fit to be my disciple. Matthew 10, 39. Whoever tries to gain his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And so Jesus promises something entirely different. Jesus doesn't say, your life will go by unchallenged, unfailing successes. You'll never experience pain. You'll never experience trouble. You will live a disease-free life. All of that would be wonderful if it was true, but it's not true. Jesus promises to walk with you and to be with you. Jesus promises to face whatever issue that you will face. And here's what he promises, that he'll walk with you and be with you. And you know what is the greatest promise of all? He says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And I'll love you to the end. Jesus said this, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to receive you to myself. So that where I am, you will be also. You see, it's our friendship with God and our fellowship with God and our relationship with God. I want you to think just for a moment and ask yourself the question, what is it that makes life meaningful? What is it that makes life significant? What is it that makes life hopeful? What is it that makes life bearable? It is the firm commitment that through all of life's pain and problem, you have a secure Savior who will love you and walk with you forever and ever. That's what provides meaning for life. This is why Jesus said 
This is how you would know that you were my apostles or my disciples or my followers. That you live a pain-free life. That you live a pain-free existence. That you live a trouble-free existence. No, Jesus said in the world you're going to have some, some problems. Does Eliphaz say stuff that's right? Yes. Spurgeon made it abundantly clear. He said, discernment isn't the difference between telling right from wrong. It's the difference between telling right from almost right. And that's the key. The key is, how can I read this where I get the message that God's going to try to communicate with me? And so... Eliphaz has given a powerful, eloquent, meaningful, even sometimes helpful sermon. He has elevated God. He has said things that are good and right. The problem isn't simply in what Eliphaz has said, it's what he has not said that the problem becomes abundantly clear. Does Eliphaz know the real reason why Job is suffering? No, he's not privy to that. Does he pretend to know something that he does in fact not know? That is a recipe for disaster and will rarely bring comfort or encouragement. Job is going to reply in the next chapter. Stay tuned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, Lord, that the next time we open up our mouth and the next time we say, you know what I would do if I were you? Lord, I pray that we would drop to our knees in humility and dependence, admit, Lord, that without facts, without evidence, without insight, and without wisdom, it's probably a really, really bad idea to say those words. Lord, we want to be men and women who love you Lord, we want to be men and women who divide the sorrow and share the joy. We want to be men and women who provide comfort and hope. We want to be men and women who point people to Jesus. That, Lord, we have a mediator and we have a satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And we have promises and comfort. And we have real promises to help in time of need. So, Lord, help us, Lord. Help us to be wise and gentle. Lord, that when we pray for wisdom, that we can seek you. That when we're with family members and friends and they, they, they tell their story, Lord, we pray that we would silently, that we would pray, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, help me. Help me to say something that's going to honor you, that's going to represent you and not misrepresent you. 
Lord, help me not to accuse this brother or sister of anything. Lord, help me to be patient. Remind me, Lord, that wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle. And if the net result isn't pure or peaceable or gentle, that, Lord, perhaps I should hold my tongue. Lord, help us so that we can say the right thing at the right time in the right way. In Jesus' name. Amen.